0: This is Fine, Episode 1.5, Trump of the Elites.
1: Hi, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. And we're going to be talking about Chris Hayes' Twilight of the Elites today, along with some general reflections on the place of elites in American society.
0: I wanted to actually begin this episode by setting a few signposts for the discussion that we're going to have. Obviously, Chris Hayes is not the first person to address this problem. The book specifically that we're talking about is a book that came out in, I think, 2012. Is that right? I think that's right. 2012 called uh, The Twilight of the Elites. And we'll get more in depth about it, the ways in which it was, I think, quite prescient about 2016 and uh, maybe some of the ways in which it you know, failed in uh, its diagnosis and or recommendations. But the genealogy out of which this book comes it's sort of set by a number of different people who are all name-checked in the book itself. Among them, I think the two that I sort of find most, most interesting are the Italian political theorist Gaetano Mosca and uh, the American political theorist uh, C. Wright Mills. Both of those people wrote books that were you know, very much focused on the analysis of the role of elites in society. Mosca's book is called The Ruling Class, but it's not actually called The Ruling Class, that's a translation, or that's the translator's title. The actual title of the book is something really dull, like Elements of Political Theory or something like that, whereas the C. Wright Mills book is uh, called The Power Elite. And so those are, I think, the the two works that kind of contextualize, I think, quite well the intellectual history behind this kind of theorizing.
1: There's one more uh, theorist who's actually name-checked in the book who I think is very important to at least my conception of the book, which is uh, Robert Michels, who started out on the left and then eventually moved over, interestingly enough, to the right and became a follower of Mussolini. Um, but he has a classic work called Political Parties, where he mostly talks about how any political party will be captured by a sort of set of leaders within it. And I think that's a it's a very important work uh, for... Both understanding how we think about elites and um, also some of the sort of changeless nature of this historical problem. So, Jerry, do you do you want to sort of set forth your your case uh, of why Twilight of the Elites is a prescient and good work before I come in with my doom mm-hmm. and cynicism?
0: Sure. I think Hayes very accurately captures a number of correct things about sort of the dynamics of American society and the people who are at the top. And again, this is not a It'll it'll become clear I think that these are not necessarily unique to American society and they're not observations that originate with Hayes himself, but I think he quite correctly characterizes this notion that you know we st- we started we started out with this this idea of meritocracy which itself is sort of an ironic conception but in any case this idea that people were going to be evaluated on their merits and it's not it wasn't going to be this you weren't going to be stratified by by race or by class. And so the ideal of this system was that, you know, people of ability everywhere were going to be able to sort of rise to their true potential. Um, what actually happened was kind of this the thing that you sort of expect to happen with the, a lot of these situations, which is that the people who got to the top first kicked down the ladders for a lot of the people who were trying to get up there as well. And they did this largely by capturing the institutions that actually held Rulemaking and decision-making power within the society, and recast them essentially to reflect their own preferences, whether those were cultural preferences, political preferences, what have you. And Hayes's book is kind of this uh, long uh, list of examples uh, of this of this happening, and also one of the key com- things that I think he points out is that the sense every every time one of these events took place there was very little accountability for anybody involved. So you ended up with a situation where, whether it was the Iraq war or the financial crisis, or, you know, he talks about Enron a lot. A couple of people went to jail for that. But for the most part, things that were viewed as either, you know, deeply immoral or, you know, just outright law-breaking ended up having very little consequences for the people that actually carried them out. And what Hayes says is that this has induced a kind of like crisis of authority Uh, within the system, which is that like, once you see that anybody can get away with law breaking, then there's really, it's not even necessarily that there's like an incentive to break the law yourself, but the the people who are at the top and who make the rules have like lost any sort of imprimatur of legitimacy. So you can just, you can just ignore them because they, like the the moral core of these institutions has turned out to be hollow.
1: So I, I actually like this version of the book that you've just described, and I think I like it better than the actual book. Uh, which, which is useful, I think the actual book attempts to say that meritocracy as a system is deeply embedded in this failure, and sort of asserts that, but then then fails. And I think that's actually my main issue with the book. Like I was joking before the pod that the book roughly makes these sort of two claims, you know, one that meritocracy shouldn't be a mode for how we organize society, which I think is a provocative and interesting claim that has a lot of merit, to it, but but also detraction. But then, really, the argument made throughout the book is um, the elites are corrupt. Throw the bums out, which is not only a deeply unoriginal um, sort of argument, but also one that's hard to argue with. I, I think what's ironic about reading this book and sort of the prescientness of it is that everywhere throughout it. It's very clear that Hayes is sympathetic to institutions and the meritocracy. I mean, he is a smart liberal guy. He comes out and says it. I yeah, I, I mean, quite quite explicitly. And and honestly, like it, like where was he in this election? Like early on, he says, "What's better, distrust of institutions or the institutions as corrupt as they are?" And it's like, well, okay, we we, we ran that our experiment in 2016, um, and now we're living the nightmare in 2017. So, and we actually know where Chris Hayes was even on the side of that experiment. And that's all fine. I think that the meritocracy and in our institutions, as flawed as they are, are better than uh, Trump or the Tea Party or Occupy. I, I, in fact, find the fetishization of Occupy really weird. Uh, e- even in the book itself, there's a discussion of the leaderless structure of Occupy, which, of course, was actually one of the things that, that made Occupy completely ineffective. Um, and, and so I, I think that's sort of a, an interesting bit. But but generally, yeah, I mean, if we want to go back to how did these elites pull the ladders down after them? What is it that we can do to make society more democratic and not allow elites to self-propagate? And what is it that we can do to channel power to people who actually demonstrate reasonable expertise? I think it's a really productive conversation. As it is, I think the book is sort of half-formed because it's written by someone who's deeply sympathetic to institutions, deeply sympathetic to ideas that... Merit matters that you know the most talented person operating on you should be the most talented surgeon, etc. And then who sandwiches that on to again this sort of um, anti-corruption argument, which which is good because like who's pro-corruption? I mean Jonathan Roach, but <laughs> other than that, like you know not many people are. And so yeah, that's that's sort of my take on the book. Like it, I I think it is prescient only in the sense that it it saw as many other people did this type of anger. But I I don't actually think that there's a real blueprint in it, shall we say, for like a normative response to corruption.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that Chris Hayes himself would claim that, you know, he has a, a great blueprint for how to deal with corruption. I don't think that was I don't think that was the core of the book. But I think the prescient part of it is definitely the fact that, you know, once you've lost once those institutions have lost kind of this you know, trust that whatever trust that they held, you really left in like a state of nihilism. And that's bad. Like nihilism is as the Big Lebowski taught us uh, <laughs> is, is really like it's 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 bad. It's um it's a really awful state uh, of being because, you know, I I mean, it's sort of like I, I don't want to get too like current and and lose our theoretical cred here. But when when the White House press secretary is talking about alternative facts, you know, you feel like you live in like an alternative universe because, and, and and nobody can sort of and there's a whole ecosystem that basically says oh well
1: yeah that's totally fine. I, I'm fine with getting current because I actually think the current moment is incredibly distressing, and I think that the the breakdowns in American society that have led to this point and that now have us living in um, a world where an authoritarian leader is repeating lies to increase his power among his followers because they repeat the lie um, and they trust him directly. And you have government officials uh, saying that they, you know, the media is, shouldn't be trusted and its supporters should only take their truth from, from the government itself. I mean, this is terrifying. You know, it's, it's very ha 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 funny. Like 1984 is a bestseller again, but Adam Gopnik wrote a bit about it. He was like, you know, I always thought 1984 was too ham-fisted. I liked the other sort of dystopias. I agree, right? But we live in the ham-fisted world now, and, and it's uh, actually
0: you know. the you know since we have mentioned 1984, um, I always tell tell this to people when I, when this topic comes up. But I was I, I think that 1984 just as a book is not very good. I mean, it has obviously kind of a popular hold on the imagination, but it. Just, I don't think it's like very well written because that was not Orwell's forte. He was not really a fiction writer. He was a journalist. That's my opinion. Um, and uh, the really the stuff that I would recommend is his actual essays. And in particular, there's a great essay called Politics in the English Language, which I think is sort of really concisely summarizes the problems with this uh, sort of world of alternative facts and everything else. And it really, I think, gets to the core of the problem that we face much better than, you know, 1984 does. Sure. So I recommend I mean, that to everybody.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't mean to endorse the novel and again in its ham visitedness No, I, no,
0: it's just fine. I I, yeah. I just want to throw my recommendation out, you I, know, for the listeners.
1: I think that's fair. I, I and honestly, you know, if you want to go to Arendt, I mean Arendt is always probably oversighted, but I think Arendt is also very useful. A good friend of mine is rereading on totalitarianism and sort of continues to post these very speckling quotes from it, which seem to apply as if they'd been written, you know, in January of 2017, as opposed to, you know, 60 years ago, uh, whenever they're, especially when they're talking about sort of the ways that authoritarians um, shape their authority by demanding a loyalty to untruth, Uh, which is I I think the gagging you were talking about just before the pod sort of as a a joke, but the gagging of these national offices. I mean, at the end of the day, if we go back to meritocracy and, and the elite, the EPA is staffed by the elite. The EPA is staffed by the winners of meritocracy. And you know what? They're not doing the wrong thing. You know, it's not like they're uh, they're engaged in some secret conspiracy against the American people. Um,
0: right. I mean, I agree with that. But I also, this is the point at which I want to, I guess, question the usage of the word elite. And I think that this points to a a distinction that I would really like to see people make more, well, on the right for sure, but also on the left, because I think it's an illuminating distinction, which is the distinction between elite and expert. And the way that I would frame this distinction, at least partly, is by saying that expertise is a, to some degree, it's an objective measure. It's a measure of like what you can do and what you know, whereas elite is really a social status that you acquire. And it would be nice, I guess, we would be living in the good timeline if those intersected really well. But in fact, uh, there's no guarantee that those are going to intersect particularly well at all. And oftentimes you get people in elite positions of power who are not experts. And at the same time, those folks in the EPA who are, you know, the the scientists at the EPA who are experts
1: are not in policymaking roles. Uh, That's actually a great point. And, And in fairness... Trump ran very hard against expertise and not against elite, so that he said elite a lot. And he's appointed to his cabinet a number of people who he would describe as elite, but not expert, yeah. all of the billionaires. And so I, I think that's actually a really good point. I find frustrating, though, it's not just that this distinction isn't made among mostly the right, but you're right, the left as well. I actually think that the popular anger almost is directed more at experts Pointy eggheads than the billionaires who have been rewriting the tax code to basically steal money. Oh, it
0: absolutely has been, and this is actually a. There's this. This is a great point because it allows me to pull from two of our sources today. Uh, So the first point is that I think that the chapter five in Chris Hayes's book is a pretty in-depth discussion of sort of how that language of the elite has been transformed to mean you know, the local English professor rather than the guy who runs the multinational conglomerate that just closed down your plant. And and that's really been kind of, I think you have to say, a major success of Republican messaging over the last 50 or 60 years, which is that they've really transformed this notion of, in the popular imagination, they've transformed this notion of the elite from somebody who possesses power over you to somebody who has different cultural tastes.
1: Right. And I I think, you know, um, Freddie DeBoer, who we hope to have on as a guest, has really pointed to some of the failures of messaging around this. You know, Trump was portrayed as this sort of ugly American, but in in many ways that attacked him for certain cultural tastes, which may have actually been very germane to swing voters, as opposed to attacking him for being basically a bad boss and a con man, the type of people who middle class American swing voters might see in their lives as a sort of predatory elite. And it's interesting that I'm not saying the, the Hillary campaign uh, you know, ever made any errors, but it, it is an interesting perspective because it's not like this is a natural distinction that, that has arisen. Yes, there's been a lot of Um, as Hayes talks about in that chapter, a lot of um, right-wing propaganda, basically, that's attempted to make this distinction very, very salient. But there still remains the fact that no one likes being cheated. And in fact, we could do better on the left at making political messaging about the sort of depredations and corruptions of the elite at the real top of the economic power structure, um, rather than focusing on softer cultural issues like I don't need to hear about Trump's gold toilet and ironically there might be plumbers in Michigan who want a gold toilet like we should be focusing instead on how he stole a billion dollars in the tax code
0: there's an article that I'm looking at right now which I know you've shared with disagreement on Facebook but I just want to point out it's a, this piece in the harvard business review uh, by uh, joan williams the piece is titled what so many people don't get about the u.s working class mm-hmm. and i just want to zero in on a particular little segment here where she's citing the work of a of another researcher by the name of michelle Lamont in a, a book called the dignity of working men and the thing that i was zeroing in on is that there was this idea that you know once you once you've like acquire extra economic status, like your cultural status will sort of also adjust in a particular direction. And what uh, Williams cites Lamont as saying is that actually the people who this conversation is about don't want that. They just they want to have the same culture, but they just want more money. So, right. And, so, and oftentimes and, they, they don't want to blame them, they don't want a boss. Right. Right. Uh, and the other point about that is that, you know, the, the boss that you interact with every day is somebody who is visible to you and is like, you know, two grades higher than you. Right. So that white collar professional who makes, you know, a hundred thousand to your 50,000 or whatever, that's somebody that you see every day, and so you're like you're directly exposed to them. And if you're if you think like, oh, who's the big bad boss man? It's that dude. Whereas the billionaire who is one of the directors or the CEO of this of the multinational conglomerate is just an abstraction. Like you never see that person.
1: So uh, I totally agree. And for what it's worth, although I dislike many facets of that article, I, I don't dislike that analysis or where she goes through and talks about. Um, you know, there are a couple people she cites, and especially their experience of professionals as described by basically their own Mm -hmm. parents. I think, you know, Katha Pollitt's dad talks about doctors as shysters. And I think there's an interesting point to what you're noting about the boss being the college educated guy who makes a little more than you and looks down at you. Now imagine that that's a person who's younger than you, and maybe a woman, right? And and so I, I think there's sort of, I actually think there's a profound status anxiety that uh, Williams identifies in that piece that I that I agree with, and I think that one of the really brilliant things that actually the Obama campaign did in 2012 was manage to um, actually trip uh, white blue-collar workers' anxiety more about Mitt Romney, who really genuinely is like a you know Santa Clausy dude, um, and make him into this very evil private equity guy, which which also he is, but I I. I that was not an easy fit. Like, it's, in fact, far easier, probably, to paint Trump in this light. And they they did a great job at it and, and arguably owe their win. I mean, they, you know, they did 10 points better in Ohio, right, to making that connection really profound. And I think that that's a sort of tack that we have conceded a little too much of because I think we're eager to, like, cultural superiority is not just that we believe that gay people and black people and women should have equality it's also making a lot about our taste. And I think that in political discourse, we would be well to unify the points about equality with points about um, really the ways that the economic elite rather than the academic elite has screwed working class Americans. And you know, for those of you who n- know me as a neoliberal, you might be, hear me be surprised to say this, but that's one of the reasons actually why I do support like Keith Ellison for DNC. Cause I think that like, it sort of unifies those two visions.
0: You know, I would say that I I think that it's really a bad plan when you make things that are otherwise sort of politically neutral, when you kind of force them to acquire political valence. And I'm thinking here, for example, of like sports, which is not to say, which is not to say that sports, you know, do not, there's no, no place for politics in sports because I think there is, but when you make things like your preference for a particular kind of sport, a politically salient thing I think that can be very damaging because I don't think like I have a lot of friends who are liberals and who love auto sports and they love wrestling and I don't think that that is a useful. I don't think it's useful to like make that those cultural preferences which you know could be due to anything, right? Uh, I don't think it's useful to make those into political battles because it not only does it sap your. Energy into stuff that just doesn't matter, but it also, I think, just alienates
1: people for no good reason. Completely agreed. I mean, I I think of this in my personal life. I'm happy to shit on CBS procedurals. You know, they're they're boring. They're dumb. I I actually, and also CBS comedies. I I accidentally because I had been watching football. The channel was on CBS, and so the next day when I turned it on, it was on um, the show Two Broke Girls, which some of you may have heard of, but I had never seen, and. I thought I was, it It was, it was like watching a horror movie in, in the way that the laugh track operated. But here's the deal. If I were a politician, that is just insane to go after that sort of thing. Like no one likes to be made fun of, you know, and I completely agree with Jerry here, like the sort of confusion of a type of cultural comfort, or cor- I mean, it, it's also a correct virtue, like those CBS shows are are fucking dumb. But like, if you're a politician, you really need to not say that. Like make your issues about the issues that are actually meaningful in people's lives because if you sort of start there, um, you right, you've alienated a large portion of your audience for no reason. And
0: this is actually something that I think really goes I mean Mosca actually notes this as well. He has his book is a little bit difficult to read I think for a modern reader because it's discursive in a way that I think we're not used to books being discursive. A lot of it is arguments with his contemporaries and forerunners in, you know, in ways that were probably not all that interesting then and are not so interesting now. But in between there, there's like some really interesting bits. And one of the things he notes is that a major problem that ruling classes face is, you know, alienate, like cultural alienation from the populace. And they, you know, because the classes don't like interact, and he says this in in particular in the context of uh, the Russian intelligentsia of the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. But in particular, he says, you know, if you don't, inter- if they don't interact with people, they start losing sight of like what those people actually think. And it should be noted here that Mosca himself was, uh, you know, very much an elitist. I guess you could say. I mean, I, I think his position probably is sort of like conservative, but not in the sense of like conservatism today, but he was definitely interested in like the mechanics by which these processes operate. So it's not like he was saying, you know, you should love NASCAR or whatever the, 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 the 1930s Italian equivalent would have been. It's that like he was saying, like, you have to understand like what people
1: believe and what people think. Um, completely agree. And and I think that this is this is actually one of the things that I maybe took issue with in Hayes' book. I really feel like this is, um, to some extent, a cultural universal crossing political systems. Um, anytime you have an elite, um, one of the ways that the elite becomes corrupt is they lose touch with the people. And there are two animating anecdotes for this that I think of. One, there's a piece going around um, basically talking about classical Rome and analogies to Trump. And there's a very funny uh, anecdote in it of how this sort of you know, maybe Tim Kaine-esque uh, patrician loses election because he ma- he mocks a plebe farmer because he shakes his hand and he goes, oh, your palms, uh, you know, have you been walking on your hands? And of course, the farmer just has rough hands from working. And, you know, it's like, "Ugh, what an asshole. We're not going to vote for him. And, you know, Right, unforced error, and and the the other anecdote is uh, Nabokov talking very fondly about one of his childhood memories of his father, uh, who was a, a leading member of the liberals in the Duma, being thrown into the air by his serfs, you know, in in a in a sort of at a harvest festival, and he's like just inexplicable with how the Russian Revolution could have happened, and I'm like, well, look, if you if the way that you ever saw the peasants who worked on your on your father's estate was like joyously throwing him in the air at this festival, you you probably don't have actually a good connection on what it was like to live as a peasant in pre-revolutionary Russia, you know. Although the the novels are good.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would uh, necessarily go to Nabokov for political thought.
1: No, I I, I would but, actually advise strongly against it. But I I mean, I think I guess in that moment of yeah, total yeah, yeah, ignorance of of uh, what's reasonable.
0: I, so I was going to say that the other interesting uh, concept I think that uh, I, I don't think Mosca introduces this concept, but he sort of coins a very nice terminology for it. He talks about something that he calls the political formula.
1: Hmm.
0: And what that really is, he he also calls it, or he refers to other people calling it the principle of sovereignty. But uh, I think the sense that I would maybe use it in is more like uh, the principle of legitimation, like what makes things legitimate. He talks a lot about, you know, religion and the military and sort of how they how different societies concoct different political formulas that sort of explain and legitimate their their rule. But he has a great quote here, which I just feel like I should read uh, verbatim. So he says, as a rule, it is the very ancient political formulas, complexes of beliefs and sentiments, which have the sanction of the ages that succeed in making their way into the lowest strata of human societies. Parenthetically, you can see that Moscow is not exactly an
1: egalitarian.
0: <laughs> uh, on the other hand, when rapid flows of ideas agitate the higher classes or the more active intellectual centers, which are generally located in large cities, the lower classes in the outlying districts of a state are likely to be left behind and differing social types tend to form inside the society. So <laughs> this is his sort of like genteel, you know, aristocratic way of... Uh, describing the process that we just we just invoked, and I thought it was
1: really kind of like a neat um, neat excerpt. I, I agree, and I, I like that quote a lot. I guess one of the things that I'd say is that I view these things as being naturally um, self self forming, self replicating, um, and that's one of the reasons why I like the Michels, because you know he he writes his book about political parties as from the position of someone who started in the SPD and then moved further to the left. And kept on looking for a spirit of democratic organization, and finding instead that through sort of natural uh, tendencies, you know, there was this linkage between, I guess, oligarchy and bureaucracy is what he says. But basically, that you know, you'd have some members who did more work, and then they became more active in leadership, and then they started dictating to people, and you set up a, a non-democratic structure. And I think that he he bemoans this in many ways, and eventually he bemoans it so much that. You know, biographically, we noted, right, he he moves farther over to the right and joins someone who he thinks can authentically channel the will of the people, Mussolini. So we shouldn't necessarily follow Michel's political thought, but he says, you know, the leaders who were first no more than the executive organs of the collective soon emancipate themselves from the mass and become independent of its control. So if you believe, as I do, and as I think as Hayes does, and this is quoted in the Hayes, by the way, that... These leaders sort of organically and naturally arise, and that they're in any institution, and that and the elite rises. How do you achieve democratic accountability? Like to me, this is the most interesting part of these structures because I do actually think believe in expertise. I do believe that ultimately you want the people making decisions say about monetary policy who know the most about monetary policy, or making decisions about the law who know the most about the law. But how do you then? Um, also keep this sort of connection to the base of the people to prevent there from being such an alienation that either the elites abuse the people, as they have, or that the people turn to a strong man, as of course they did in Mussolini's time and now in our time, in sort of disfavor of, of, of any elitism.
0: I think that's a very, right, it's an interesting question. It's a very big problem. And I'm not going to pretend that I have like a, a very easy answer to it. I, I think that the issue, one of the issues that, you kind of deal with in a situation with any level of complexity is that there is just too much going on for any one person or you know any group of people to sort of resolve these questions in a way that requires everybody to know everything i mean that that's why sort of like you can't even though i'm you know not sort of generally pro like democratic measures i am not that small d democratic I don't think that we can make every decision by just having a national referendum. Right. We shouldn't vote on interest rate policy. I think that's bad because it's impossible for people to make these kinds of decisions based on, like, you know, their expertise because their expertise is not in it. I mean, I would certainly not want myself, you know, voting on these a lot of these questions just because, like, it would require an infinite um, amount of time to just become educated about it. And so that's the function that political parties sort of in the past have played is that they aggregate kind of general preferences into and channel them into specific platforms that you can then vote for. So even if you don't know a lot about monetary policy, you can look at one party, you can look at a different party, you can be like, well, these people probably kind of more closely reflect my principles than these other people. And you can make your decisions based on that.
1: Um, But that's actually what's been so interesting about the capture of both parties by very, very wealthy people has been because, you know, we can argue over the merits of various trade or regulation, but maybe a a clear one where we'd all agree is that, you know, the estate tax should exist. And this is actually something Hayes brings up in his book. Like, why on earth was Obama compromising on the estate tax to shield $10 million of estate income? You know, um, as Hayes points out, like Andrew Carnegie was for the estate tax. Like, you know, inherited wealth has always been viewed as a bane to American social mobility and equality of opportunity. And the answer is because that party structure started to fail, right? Because both sides have been captured by at least by this economic elite.
0: I think I think that's true, and I think it points to this problem that we sort of touched on in in the intro, which is that um you know once you once you have this problem of capture, uh, that the capture happens, it doesn't happen like officially. The way it actually happens, right, is that you have a lot of people who share common experiences and common educations, upbringings, whatever, common cultural markers. And they all get together, and it turns out that they all kind of like think the same things, right? And when enough, if enough of those people coagulate at the top, I guess, or you know, rise to the top of an institution, it should be not surprising that the institution is going to end up reflecting those people's preferences, uh, even if it's meant to be nominally an institution that's responsive to the public. So my, not panacea, but sort of one of my proposed solutions, I guess, would be to say that Institutions in general need to be, I think, more accountable to their bases, and they need to be more transparent about what they do and why they do it. And, and this is something that ha- kind of frustrated me about, like, this, uh, for example, like, the the campaign, um, like, not so much the Clinton campaign itself, although partly that too, but more like the various people who are, like, were like satellites around this campaign, like Wasserman Schultz and Donna Brazile, who are, like engaged in this weird backroom politics that didn't actually mean anything like it didn't actually influence anything or change anything but just makes everybody look bad you know and it's bad because it's like it's like stuff that happens in the background and you don't see it and then it comes out and it's like
1: distasteful and it's just like you didn't you don't need to do it you can just not do those things and you think i guess so i guess i have i have two feelings here one is that um, we're humans and so there's always sort of, yeah, of machination. Course, of and, course. And I think that those were only exposed again because of criminal Russian hacking. I mean, I agree with your accountability point to some degree, but I I think I have two objections to it. One is that accountability is really hard to measure. And two, as you've pointed out, is that um in, in other discussions, is that once you have a metric, in fact people start gaming that metric very quickly. That's absolutely and, true. And and you know, we we've had actually disagreements on on sort of how usable metrics are in different ways, but certainly in terms of like, if you're trying to figure out whether your political leadership is accountable and it seems very, very hard to design metrics that are, that are, I I mean, I can see accountability actually in certain other frames, but I think this is going to be real tough. Again, when the evidence is mixed, it's going to be difficult.
0: Um, you know, whether a particular individual element of say like the affordable care act is like good or not, is a very difficult question to answer, and there are going to be a lot of people with like, very different opinions on it. I think the accountability is, is something that happens at like, a high level. I, I bring up Iraq again. That's accountability that is just like, should have discredited all the people who were participants in that project. And instead, David Fromm is writing for The Atlantic. Like, I mean, to me, that's just kind of like, I mean, this is a person who got it really, really wrong to really disastrous effect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, there have been no consequences. Like, and I'm not saying, like, he should be in jail. I'm just saying, like, you don't have to give him a platform to do it. It sucks. It sucks because I like reading The Atlantic. And I think there are some really good writers who write for it, like ta Coates and many others. Um, but it just leaves a sour taste in my mouth. I mean, I, I just look at it. and I'm like, oh, this is the institution that employs David from. Uh, mm. But I guess
1: the the funny thing about so I'll say two things. One, I don't think this is at all unique to our moment. But but two, sure, you know why is from at the Atlantic? From is actually at the Atlantic because he was fired from his right wing think tank job for saying that ACA was going to pass and Republicans should get on board and try and make the ACA uh, a bipartisan initiative so that they would uh, gain gain power from it. Now, interestingly enough, he was right in that. Um, except maybe maybe wrong ultimately because I think uh, being against ACA and digging their heels in was tactically good for the Republicans. But regardless, I mean, he's he's only at the Atlantic because a right wing think tank fired him for basically speaking the truth about the ACA. Okay, so but there's I, some but meta funniness. I think, funniness to I that. think like, we should have higher
0: standards than right wing think tanks. I really do. And you know, Andrew Sullivan wasn't fired from anywhere. As far as I know, but he wrote for the Atlantic forever after. You know, it was very clear. I mean, he was another guy who was like all the way behind Iraq and
1: and, and before that, he he published a long defense of the bell curve in the New Republic. Yeah, I mean, like he, his, his list of suicide. his list of
0: offenses is like long and bad. But but I just I, I I'm just focusing on like like these top level points. I mean, another yeah. example I think is something where um, I don't know if Hayes actually makes this point because I don't remember if it happened before or after the book was published but there was this great example of I think it was, I can't remember whether it was HSBC, the big bank that Mm -hmm. basically was like running a money laundering operation for Central American drug lords and it's just like, how can that happen if an individual does that, right? That is a federal crime and you are going to jail for God knows how long and if a giant corporation does it there just don't seem to have been any repercussions. I mean, they paid fines, but it's not like the people who were responsible were paying those fines out of their own pockets. Yeah. Like most of them probably got, you know, jettisoned with golden parachutes. No, like, they just shareholders. Yeah. It's, just, it's just like, I mean, and the Catholic church, which, you know, Hayes does discuss in his book, is that the mechanism of accountability was just to move the, the offending, the priests who were sexually molesting children into another parish where it would happen again.
1: Right. And, and often, in fact, ter- and terribly perishes with people who are of low or socioeconomic oh, status. Yeah. Uh, I guess here's where I want to say something, which is that I think accountability is really difficult. And I think that elites mess up all the time under any institution. So I, I guess my proposal is not necessarily for accountability, because I don't actually know what that means in a... Um, Catholic Church context. I mean, I yeah, sure, you throw out priests and you don't just reassign them who who are bad, but I I guess I don't know what it means in the sense of is there some organizing principle of greater accountability that um, you know that suddenly the Catholic Church fell down on no, it just seems to be a property of institutions that it's very hard to take people in leadership and adequately punish them. I don't I don't think that's new. Um I guess one of the things that I would support would be um some more classical solutions to this problem, actually. Like, I've become a bigger believer in not direct democracy, which I still think is terrible, but um, actually lottering people into positions of decision-making. So roughly the the jury system, I think, is a very, mm-hmm. very interesting system. And I think we underutilize the idea of people from a um, cadre who are determined to be uh, past some minimum qualifying threshold and then lottery for positions. So advance how much more interesting would it be slash uh you know if federal judges for example if everyone who passed a certain minimum threshold then there was like random selection for a for a term a limited term um it would obviously depoliticize appointments to to a great degree and i think it'd be hard to argue that among a certain sort of section of barristers that, that wouldn't actually produce better results and obviously there are bright-line political cases because the supreme court now roughly legislates morality in, in ways that frankly i've liked over the last x years that make that complicated but you know, I'd advance another thing would be Fed Board of Governors. Mm-hmm. Right now, Fed Board of Governors are this very political sort of you know dovish or hawk on inflation, and uh, they're not just sort of. You could actually imagine that random assignment from a selected group of qualified economists would would produce. So, so I guess like some of the things that I'm not sure that we can get accountability of leaders once they're in office. For example, Barack Obama, if it was a parliamentary system, he would have been out in 2010. Um, as a presidential system, I mean, I think he was probably the best president of my lifetime. It, what does accountability mean, though? Should Barack Obama yeah, be but punished I think, but for I think being on that, the watch of the Democratic Party? Like,
0: well, but I mean, yes, actually, right? I, I think this this might get into a different discussion that we'll probably have in the future. But you know, the question is like, what does punishment mean? Um, I think that
1: not running for the Atlantic.
0: Well. No, right. I mean, sorry. in this, in, in David Frum's case, it would be not writing for the Atlantic. In Barack Obama's case, I mean, th- there's a you know there's there's a credible criticism to be made, which I think is correct, uh, that um, you know his inability to transform the organization that he built for his campaign into kind of a, an actual national organization that would continue supporting Democrats was very bad for the party. Mm-hmm. Now, that does not mean that Barack Obama. No, like is no longer welcome in the Democratic Party or that you know we shouldn't have him give, give speeches or something like that because he's still a very popular politician all things considered however what that does mean is that I think you know if Barack Obama is if you're arguing with Barack Obama about how to build a party it means that in this particular case Barack Obama may not be the best, to have the best insights into how to do it. So, so like Barack Obama should not be DNC chair. That's what I would say, for example, that's sure. not a punishment as such, but it's just a question of like, okay, it's, it's a question of evaluating like what you've actually
1: done. So if accountability means we, as people who are trying to interact with various different institutions, demand from our institutions that they choose leaders who we think haven't led, um, you know, catastrophic failures or blueprints for disaster, I think that that's a reasonable statement of accountability, and, and maybe to the same extent. It's like, hey, I would like the Atlantic to pu- to publish people who are at least sort of openly have dealt with sort of the like massive errors that caused them to to say things before hiring them again as a pundit. I hear that. I guess I guess the the issue I have with believing that this is more than a very small part of the solution is that it it really depends like. There's this very big collective active problem on, like, A, all of our disagreement about how success is measured. Like, this works for institutions where we are ideologically aligned and can, can agree on how success is measured and then can agree on what sort of previous people have done, right? Like, I think it becomes very, very difficult for institutions where we have to share them with people who have different ideologies, or where measurement becomes very hard, et cetera.
0: I I agree with that. And, you know, I'm sensitive, as as you pointed out, to the problem of if you design a metric, like, will people game that metric? Absolutely, they will. So it's not that I think that there's going to be like a single number that comes out of this that is going to tell us whether this person did well or did not do well. I think that has, that's a qualitative assessment. I think ultimately it's not something that you can really quantify, especially for example, like I, one of the things I love is like when people start sort of quantifying various things that like various votes that senators take, because so many of those votes, like it's like when you, when you put a number to it, a lot of those votes are like this, these weird procedural manipulations that don't actually mean anything. So anyway, like the a you number mean like th- these DW nominate
1: scores. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Like, I
0: mean, so yeah. like a lot of those numbers may not be referring, I mean, they kind of maybe in a gross sense refer to something useful, but they're not like, you can't like pinpoint with, you know, one decimal place accuracy, like whether this person is like more effective than this other person. It's, it's a qualitative yeah. ass- problem of qualitative assessment. Like, it's a difficult problem, no question about it. But you still have to go through that process and you still have to be open about it. Because the problem is that, like, people just don't trust the institutions that are that we sort of view as kind of these pillars of society, if mm-hmm. you will. And that has, like, real deleterious effects. But you also can't say that they're necessarily wrong to not trust them because the interplay between those institutions and, and the people who they are designed to serve has been sort of very one-sided.
1: I, you know, I guess, and yet I, I I sort of, I mean, I'm going to reveal my anti-democratic impulses here. You know, the inst- as we've talked about before, the institutions which they most distrust are not the ones that I think have failed them. You know, we the FDA has been remarkably successful, and yet we've got this stupid anti-vax movement, which is, you know, people on the left and right. Climate change is is literally a global catastrophe. And yet, Subst- I think the largest portion of any OECD country in, in the US doesn't believe in climate change. The people who are the most trusted are, are the military, which yes. is interesting if you look at failure. And also um, I believe another sort of high degree of trust uh, is are not corporations but um, but the market and and the free market, which I think is another sort of ideological interposed thing. And you know the reaction to Trump's billionaire cabinet has been very interesting. You've seen articles in the press, Saying And and who knows how true this is? Maybe the cabinet is actually very unpopular. It's very, very difficult to disaggregate polling about the cabinet from Trump, who's himself very unpopular, historically unpopular for a, a new president, thank God. But it does appear when you ask supporters about the billionaire cabinet, they say things like, and I'm sure you've read articles like this. Well, they've used their talents for themselves. Now they're going to use the talents for the countries. There's there's an uh, an association of virtue with becoming a billionaire, not any sort of questioning of how they achieved it. I mean, you know, Amway is basically a ridiculous sort of pyramid scheme, and that's the the bulk of where Betsy DeVos' fortune's from. And yet, her money gives her a imprimatur as someone who's a serious person in America. And that seems very difficult to challenge, even as there's a lot of skepticism about other institutions. And that's where I have to go, you know, I appreciate the rottenness. And, and again, the the notion I was trying to bring up earlier of this sort of cycle of, of rotten elites is a very common feature across society. But I also think our, there's something sort of rotten in the people. Like, I, like I, I, I think that their trust of um, these, uh, you know, creatures of of unearned uh, wealth and privilege is is totally bizarre. I agree that it's bizarre. and but
0: you know we we are living today in a world that, again, has been made by sort of decades of Republican efforts to uh, to change the way that we discuss politics and the way that we discuss politicians. Uh, which is not to say that everything was glorious in, you know, 1950 or whatever, but the language is substantially different. You know, even then there were like these uh behind the scenes, right? What what used to be kind of stuff that you would only find in Bercher pamphlets, uh, you know, if you if you read somebody like Rick Perlstein and his uh Before the Storm. Right. So he, he actually details, you know, a lot of this stuff and like goes through the contents of these pamphlets, and it's really fascinating. If you have a morbid sense of humor but but I mean, this is the stuff that used to be underground and is now just part of the society, and like you have to combat that i don't I don't know I don't know like there's not a magic wand that we can wave and do away with it, so we're just gonna have to soldier on
1: yeah no that's, it, that's fair. I mean, I'm not suggesting there are magic wands and and I appreciate actually that um, you know accountability is probably a more reasonable goal than watering in elites from from positions although i do want to plug the lottery for one more time think about college admissions if everyone oh, over yeah. a certain sort of threshold were just lotteried in and how much better life would be for literally all teenagers i
0: think i think the lottery idea for a lot of things actually has uh you know a lot of merit and uh probably something at the local level uh, that could be tried uh quite effectively um I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think it's I think it's great. I think it's always going to be a difficult sell at the top because the people who win elections are gonna to want to implement certain policies and they're going to demand to put people in place who are going to implement those policies. Yeah, so I,
1: I agree with that. As policy roles it might be hard. Although, you know, this tendency which has been we've almost brought back a spoil system Um, for, uh, for example, ambassadorships, right? Mm -hmm. The ambassadorships, for those listeners who don't know, you know, if you're an ambassador to Luxembourg, what that means is that you gave like 10 to $20 million in the last presidential campaign. And that's really fucking weird. I mean, I get it. We don't care about Luxembourg. So whatever, their ambassador can be just some French speaking person who gave a lot of money to one of the parties. This is true, by the way, for Republicans and Democrats. This is not a, a thing where there's a partisan bias or any one of the few things in American politics that is just pure graft. And honestly, if we if we lotteried ambassadorships from, you know, they don't even if we State Department trophyskins we give them to random wealthy people. Like, if you lotteried ambassadorships to certain non diplomatically important countries to I don't know, like prominent Americans, like I think that'd be great. I you know, <laughs> like there's there's a sense in which um, one of the things that I do like about Chris's book, I wish he'd been more adamant against a type of meritocracy. That says that the person with the highest grades from Harvard Law School will necessarily make the best Supreme Court justice. I just don't think that's true. It's uh, Anton Scalia's explicit claim, and, and I mean, he he didn't didn't he like hate Sandra Day O'Connor
0: because she went to like a shitty school like Stanford.
1: I I, I think that might be right. <laughs> Although I want to defend both Scalia and actually Th- Thomas. Let me defend Thomas. Thomas is has, is very ideologically different than me, but Thomas has taken more clerks from non-premier law schools than, than oh, any than any other justice. And I, I do think that, look, there is obviously a base intellectual threshold that you need to pass to look at the law. And I have many, many brilliant friends at, from various law schools. But I, I think it's some threshold that becomes absurd. And the qualities that you're looking for in a justice or a judge no longer are about a pure cleverness, not not even the, the highest GPA at the law school never even measures that pure cleverness well. And I think, you know, look, I'll say one thing for the leader. No, I'm not because fuck Trump. But something that is interesting, at least about his approach to the Supreme Court list is there are people who are on it who would not have necessarily been on it from a Repu- another Republican administration He's on his list. I actually don't know. That. Uh, it's a it's an interesting list of of twenty one people. but I, I will say that uh, you know, there are some real bad people there ideologically. but actually, if you look at their backgrounds, there's no reason that someone from the Colorado Supreme Court shouldn't be on a Supreme Court shortlist. Um you know, the Supreme Court used to be filled in many ways with with people who were different than the sort of professional jurists who run it now. And I don't necessarily think that was a bad thing for for the law. And this is an interesting
0: point because one of the methods by which, Sort of the elite consolidates itself and propagates a sort of myth of deserving power is you know by like there's this meritocratic story about well these are the top people at Harvard or whatever. But if you look at it like there's been I think a quite substantial consolidation, especially passing through higher education as the filter into, like the very people at the top, like where do they come from? Mm-hmm. They come from a very small subset of the overall educational institutions in the United States. And whatever you want to say for those institutions, and look, I you know I, I don't I don't have anything against them. Like as educational organizations, uh, I think that it really does create a very limited horizon of perspective. And if you if everybody comes from the same same place and everybody kind of believes the same things. Uh, and everybody takes that legitimacy myth as a given, you know, you really do end up with a, with an isolation from kind of the the broader, not just the, I don't want to even say the broader culture, but just like you lose sight of how things actually are.
1: I, I uh, completely agree with that. And I also think it's, it's actually not often tied to merit in the way people think it is. You know, I, I um I can't speak about my, my work in particular, but um Google, for example, has great data on hiring, and one of the things that they found was that a lot of the measures, particularly measures like standardized scores above a certain level or GPA above a certain level, or um you know, these are all sort of matters of thresholds. Once you're roughly above a threshold, the actual performance of the employee was not predicted by um, the indicator that they'd previously used to sort on. And this was actually particularly true for school choice. Um, so you know, I, I believe Google, and you can look at it actually, because I think they've made a lot of their hiring data public, which is sort of a, a very good thing that Google has done and that more companies should do. Um, not obviously individual outcomes, but sort of analysis of data of hiring. Is that there? Really, you know, there is there are elements of meritocracy that are accurate that I that I believe in very firmly. People have skills. People develop expertise. The measurements which we use are, are reasonably accurate. But it it actually is the case, for example, that I, I think they were finding that that many people from Big Ten schools were outperforming people from Ivys, for example, at Google. Um, you know, provided again they had similar scores. I think that a lot of the biases people don't appreciate, but they do these resume studies, and you know, if you submit a resume and you have these class indicators that are for more lower class, um, you know, extracurricular pursuits. This is a huge negative to you in in terms of being called back in interviews. And so I think that, um, again, I actually like a lot of the meritocracy, but people, I wish people were more aware of the ways in which um, so many aspects of the meritocracy are really about exactly what Jerry's talking about, about sort of preserving this clubbishness. And sort of um, fetishizing these markers that are not at all predictive of success—that has the deleterious effects that Jerry was speaking about um, in terms of, you know, um, fostering groupthink um, and, and, you know, actually creating more risk because you have people who all have the same groupthink perspective, but you know, also missing out on on just lots of people from from uh, places that are underrepresented.
0: And, And I should say that, like, to make this a little bit more personal for a moment, I should say that I've experienced some of these things firsthand. So I'm an immigrant. I was not born in this country. I came to America from uh, uh, Socialist Russia or Socialist Ukraine, I guess.
1: Uh, It'll be Socialist Russia again soon. It'll be
0: Socialist Russia again soon. So uh, surely by the time you listen to this podcast. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I definitely had this experience of showing up in a place where people didn't share my cultural background, obviously. I didn't share theirs. I didn't speak the language. And I had to go through this process of teaching myself Uh, Sort of what were the signposts? I mean, I, I realize this now. I didn't realize it then. But like, what were the cultural markers of this group that I was trying to join? And that was like an ongoing learning process for me in a way that, you know, this won't be a process for my children or this isn't a process for most like certainly white American kids because you just grow up knowing that, right? And if you don't grow up knowing that, it's hard. And which is not to say that it was like a miserable experience or anything, but it was just a, it was just this process that I had to go through to learn what other people took for granted. So from that perspective, I definitely sympathize with people who show up in a, an environment, like maybe they're coming from a rural environment and they show up in the big city, quote unquote. And all of a sudden it turns out that like, you know, oh, you're like this one person who made from your hometown who made it, I don't know, to like investment banking or something. And then it turns out that like, there's all these, I mean, this is like the J.D. Vance story, uh, right? Like he shows up and he's like this one guy from, you know, rural Ohio or whatever. And he's made it to banking or whatever. And like, it turns out all these people are like assholes to him because he just comes from like this different cultural background. They just like look down on him. So I understand like that, that is a, an extremely off-putting thing like you should not do this <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I and, and so to some extent like I, I I sympathize I don't approve of but I do sympathize with this like resentment I guess that a lot of people have where they just feel like this, uh, this other culture the other cultural side sort of like views them as you know, essentially retrograde, not even on the basis necessarily of like specific political beliefs, but just on the basis of, again, they lack the proper cultural markers.
1: I, I think that's really right. And it's something that even my wife has talked about coming from Terre Haute, Indiana, and then and then going to the, school, the undergraduate school she went to and just having the sort of culture shock um, to a certain degree. You know, I don't believe it's a panacea in part because I think that there is already some filtering of, of the you know, I live in a New York filled with wonderful people from every red state who would never return. And so I think we sort of already in some ways do cream the, the crop off. We could do more of it, um, but I think unless they return, we, we don't get the political dividend. Not that that should be their burden. but I do but I do think it's really important for the institutions we have and for the elite that we have to look more like America. Um, and I think that it can look more like America without a loss of quality and i think that again i don't think that solves some of the the problems that were some most salient in the last election or in coming elections you know when the robots take the truck driver's job you know having more google vice presidents from michigan state is is not going to going to solve that problem but but i do think that it it would would do some work to making our institutions better
0: that is definitely part of it this is this is why i am i sort of you know, harp on this notion of transparency a lot is because so much of the stuff that happens, right, in any organization is tacit and belongs to this sort of notion of shared understanding that you just often take for granted. Um, you know, I know I'm part of organizations where we just sort of uh, assume that, like, when we show up, we're going to do this particular thing, and that we have all these common assumptions about how to do it and what the right way to go about it is. And that's, I think that's normal and just that that's totally human. But at the same time, when you are responsive to a larger audience, you have an obligation. I view this as a moral obligation to explain to people what you're doing and why. I think that this is something that a lot of, well, certainly conservative elites, but also liberal elites have been a little too contemptuous of. And I think that that's really a bad mistake. I think you really owe oh, it to people in whose name you're acting to explain why you are acting the way that you do to the limits that it is reasonable to do so.
1: I think that, you know, I've taken a different position from Jerry on this in the past, but I completely endorse the position he, he holds in, in 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 terms of its motivation. I think that there are types of transparency that are very powerful and it's easy to understand that if you didn't require Donald Trump to dispose of any of his business holdings. But if he were to show you every bank and brokerage account and holding that he had in real time, um, you, you would uh, you would have an incredibly powerful chilling effect on the type of corruption that will happen. So I certainly appreciate the power of, tra- and that's true for, for any emerging market, by the way, as well. I certainly appreciate the power of that transparency. And I think the moral duty that Jerry describes is a very real one, I guess not to defend the contemptuousness, but to defend my slight thumbs down. <laughs> certain types of transparency, I think, like accountability. Um, a lot of times, transparency is used as sort of post facto character assassination. I mean, we're all familiar with this from you know various depositions um, in uh, corporate law cases, which turn into find the most embarrassing email so you can pin it on a junior person. And I think that the. The Goal is correct. The moral duty of having a constituency and explaining it, and, and the moral duty that actually Jerry alluded to, but I think I want to specify, of having a culture in which you make clear what the rules and operations are. You know, in Hayes's description of Enron as a culture where lawlessness was explicitly promulgated is obviously defeased to a certain extent by a culture where there's a culture of strict transparency and a culture of taking the the high road about different positions that's modeled by the people within it. So I I respect that a lot. Um, I just think that there have to be sort of safeguards around the use of such transparency. I'm actually more of a fan of within organization transparency. Although obviously, when your constituents are the public, like with a governmental organization, that, that's not uh, that's that's not yeah, sufficient. Yeah, and
0: I mean, there've been I think there've been great examples where, not even including this election, where that has been those transparency efforts have been abused. Uh, definitely. So, in particular, I'm thinking of the East Anglia climate emails that were, you know, just completely innocent. But if you don't speak the lingo of uh, the people who are who are writing those emails,
1: like you think that something really nefarious is going on. And I oh, like how it, Jerry reaches to climate science. I'm like thinking of like, there was this corporate lawsuit against Goldman. Well, so. you know, it's just
0: like the, <laughs>
1: all but all of those
0: things. Absolutely. Like, it, yeah. it, you, it, it's it's definitely possible and does happen that uh, these things can be abused. And when I say when I talk about transparency I certainly don't mean that like people should be able to go out and you know find everything that any government worker has ever said that did not involve their official government duties. But at the same time it's like when you are on the clock and working for the people like you should probably focus on the people's business, right? And you should do it in a way that if that business came out you wouldn't look bad. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, I mean, it's. I agree with that, and I, I think there's an interesting tie to institutional trust here. Um, we haven't at all talked about policing and yeah, and policing. I mean, policing is a good one because yeah, transparency it, is a very interesting angle. Under it's. Rhetoric, I
0: yeah. mean, police. The police and uh, like in, we talked about the army being one of the most trusted institutions. The police are the other one, and how much you trust the police, I think, depends a whole lot on your. Uh, well, it definitely depends on your skin color. It depends on your, you know, your other political commitments. And it's and it's one of those things where to me that it's it's an extreme example because this is a group of people who are empowered literally quite to take lives. Yeah. And at that level, you know, there's very little stuff that is that, that overrides that. So if you are going to have an organization that's empowered to kill people, uh, you'd better be real sure that your oversight is effective. I uh, think our oversight is not
1: effective. I, I agree with that. And I think transparency serves a very interesting role there. I mean, we talk about body cameras, but there's also transparency in terms of um, the interactions between the community and the police. And I think what's been mm-hmm. so interesting about the various cities that have, although, of course, crime is, has largely declined quite significantly, dear leader aside, over over the past decade, the cities that have ex- have experienced sharp rise in crime are ones where there's a large level of distrust and crisis of authority in terms of the police, right? You have this ongoing civil rights scandal and torture of inmates um, in Chicago. Um, basically Chicago police were running a black site for people who hadn't even yet been indicted of crimes. Um, this, is, this is all true and I think ProPublica did a report on it. It's actually very, mm-hmm. very terrifying and worth your time to investigate. But, you know, people can't talk about the murder rate spike in Chicago, and I think not talk about the failures of the police. And I think that the failures of the police in this particular way, some of which may have been mitigated by a more open culture and a more a culture of transparency and collaboration with, with the citizenry, are, it, it is directly correlated to that, to that rise in crime and, and decrease in social cohesion.
0: And I, I wish I could remember uh, where I read this, but I read a piece recently about specifically policing in places like Chicago and Baltimore. And the point that the author was making was that in a very serious way, these places are actually under policed Hmm. and they're under policed in in that the police don't actually seem to care very much about what goes on within these sectors that have been sort of uh, marked as, you know, Whatever no go zones for them, and all they care about is whether that the, there's any spillover from from those into like right. wealthier
1: areas. Jill Ovie, so, uh notes this in her book Ghetto Side, which I maybe that's very, what very I was maybe, reading. Maybe
0: somebody was su- citing citing Ghetto Side because the, the that makes sense. The,
1: what's amazing about it is even as the murder rate has declined, you see murder closure rates—that's the rate at which you mm-hmm. um, find a suspect who you believe committed the murder and bring them to trial. Um, have have also actually stayed quite low in some cities, and roughly this is because of exactly the sort of under policing that, that Jerry describes. So,
0: you know, we, we are we are living in in sort of very perilous times with regards to institutions. Part part of the reason why we are where we are is because we've I think people have been quite successfully demagogued into all sorts of opposition that just doesn't make any sense. But I think that the problem is that that demagoguery comes on the heels of like actual real mistakes that institutions and the people leading them, because I think institutions themselves aren't like things that make decisions. It's really people that make decisions. Those are real mistakes that have been made. And, you know, it's because it, when Donald Trump, I, I, I think there was a, it's not Donald Trump that I'm thinking of. It's a, I, actually, I was listening to a, a podcast featuring uh, Jeb Lund and someone else whose name I don't recall at the moment. But they were talking about Alex Jones. And one of the things that they were saying was that the terrifying thing is that, you know, 90% of what Alex Jones is talking about is, like, completely insane. But then there's, like, that 10% that actually corresponds to, you know, real things that have verifiably happened in the world. And so that's really, the, like, the danger, I think, of uh, where lo- the losing of the trust comes when you, like, do bad things and then you don't admit it and you just kind of go on as if nothing has changed.
1: Right when institutional capture has made it so that the only people talking about certain types of malfeasance also believe that Jerry and I are reptilians you you have a serious problem I think I think in in sort of moving to a close, I, I want to talk about the ways that we can remake um, institutions in in the. US at least from a sort of left activist position or from a liberal activist position. And why I think, you know, it's been a really, really depressing week um, for, Mm -hmm. for a lot of us. And I think that one of the things that has been so depressing has been seeing democratic politicians collaborate, even in small ways, um, you know, voting for voting for cabinet members who they find totally incompetent, but not the worst of the cabinet. And welcome to HUD, Ben Carson. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm, I'm dissatisfied by that. And I think one of the reasons I'm dissatisfied by it is in looking at the energies of the Tea Party and in looking at ways of the, the limited ways that we do have to form organizations that can call people into types of accountability or replace it, I think it is necessary to take a, a tone of a lack of collaboration with, with uh, the sort of, not just with the worst excesses of the authoritarian state, but with any of the excesses. Because I think that when we start to collaborate, we basically um, affiliate ourselves with, with and are in some ways buying Um, and signing on to um, many of the terrible things that are going to happen over the next four and eight years. And I think that there's maybe an institutional lesson about um, I'm not saying you have to burn it all down, like hopefully we can reform these institutions from within, but I think it's very hard to do so if if your leadership is committed to preserving certain norms which which serve not only just the generically powerful, but in this case, I think the powerful and the immoral.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that Abiding by norms should not be a sort of uh, you know it's not a suicide pact. It's not unilateral disarmament. If both parties are abiding by norms, then it makes sense. And if one party has decided to jettison those, then it doesn't because you're just you're, you're just limiting yourself in what you can do. So I'm also extremely disappointed with the Democratic senators and and how they kind of behaved this this last week. Um, I think that it's interesting because it points to kind of a difference between the way that Republicans have operated ever since the, not in the run-up and after the Tea Party and sort of the way that Democrats have been, have been doing it. So the Republican strategy, I think has been from 30,000 feet has been to say, okay, well, we are not getting the things that we were promised. And this is like I find this funny because, you know, in 2004, Thomas Frank wrote this book called What's the Matter with Kansas? Mm. And, you know, one of the main questions he asked is like, well, why why do they keep voting for these people when they don't get the things that they've been promised? Well, it turns out that all you had to do was wait another couple of years and uh, the energy to get people in office who are committed to the things that you actually want would eventually come up. And so... um, that was the, stra- the strategy. Was like extremely simple in that they were just like, okay, well, we're not getting what we want. so we're just going to mobilize people at every single level possible until we get somebody in office who who does what we want. And whereas I think the impulse of people within the Democratic Party has been to sort of defer to the leadership. And I think in ordinary times. That kind of makes sense. If things were if things were normal, you would kind of say, "Okay, well, you know, this is the these are the leaders. Uh, they probably know what's up." But I think we're not we're definitely not living in ordinary times. No, it,
1: it's an emergency, and I'm sorry, but I think that you know, ironically, Chuck Schumer's policies are probably closer to mine than the person who will do this. But I think we should primary Chuck Schumer. I think that. Democrats should be afraid of primaries in the same way that Republicans are in terms of their ideological coherence. There was something, there was a graph uh, in North Carolina which has a supermajority of Republican state legislators despite having just elected a Democratic governor and being a 50-50 state. And one of the points they brought up was 27 of the 70 districts didn't even have a Democrat running, right? Yeah, it's and, just, I mean, what are you doing? And Jerry and I have talked about this before. Tom Price, by the way, who's going to be the new HSS chair of unless in- he's Successfully opposed, which he won't be, but because Democrats are rolling over, his district actually in Georgia, I believe, was carried by Hillary Clinton, or maybe oh, it was 50, right? 50 And it's sort wow. of like, and yet they're having trouble drafting someone to run against if he does get nominated. The special election for the seat, I think, I think um, Daily Kos is, is organizing around someone. But my point is generally, I agree with you completely. Uh, maybe in normal times, but this leadership has proved insufficient. And even if this leadership is, I think, ideologically much more contiguous with my policy beliefs, then the leadership that might replace it, I want to win. And then I can feel comfortable arguing about policy. And so, you know, I I really do think that um, there needs to be a sort of grassroots movement to um, re-energize the party, to force the leadership to be less accommodationist and to, to just make sure that we're fighting in all of these places where, where in some cases we're not even running candidates now.
0: And to give a little bit of a preview to that, uh, I, we've been communicating with a few folks um, who've been doing a lot of organizing on the ground, and particularly in Pennsylvania, and we hope to um, have them on at some point in the near future Agreed. Uh, to talk about the things that they've been doing and how nationally you know, progressive and liberal causes can be Furthered, you know, by by aiding these groups that are doing this kind of on the ground organizing.
1: So, thanks for listening, finers. Thanks, Jerry, and thanks as always to our talented sound engineer, Greg Young. And uh, next time we'll continue this conversation, actually talking about party organization uh, on the left. See you later.